Thanks for tuning in today on this episode regarding blockchain. It's a really a special treat to listen to because there's so much good information in here. We talk about cryptocurrency, we talk about smart contracts, and also the future of our industry as it relates to leveraging blockchain. I want to thank Rolf for being so patient answering all these basic questions, but hopefully this episode really provides a good framework of understanding the ba basics of blockchain and is informative as well as enjoyable. Thanks for tuning in. The world around us is changing faster than ever before. before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome, Welcome. to Data Welcome. Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Welcome back to Data Gurus. I am very excited to introduce my guest today. It's Rolf Swinton and otherwise known in my mind as the blockchain expert. Welcome, Rolf. Time to welcome this week's data guru. Seema, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for having me. And Rolf, I know we talked offline. I cannot do justice to all the things you're involved with. So I'd love to give you the opportunity just to share a little bit about what you're currently working on and a little bit about your background. Thank you. Yeah. So in a little nutshell now, I've, in a nutshell, I've recently joined GFK where I've taken on a new role. They've just created of uh, the director of data assets for GFK as GFK is currently on this fantastic mission to reinvent its business and to refocus it sort of for the future of the insights industry. At the same time, I'm also the co-founder of the IIEX Accelerator, which is a new program that we're helping to bring new capital resources to help accelerate very early stage companies targeting the inside industry. And I'm also the co-founder of the Blockchain for Media Marketing and Insights Forum, which is an effort in partnership with IEX and Greenbook on how to help bring our industries forward to really understand and begin to apply blockchain to their business models. That sounds exciting. I actually feel better because I know everybody's always confused with the different titles that I have. So <laughs> I have a compadre here. So let's talk blockchain. That yes. is the topic that was so hot last week at IAEX. And every time you read about it, there's something related to blockchain. And, yes. you know, I'm starting to understand a little bit more, but I'd love to kind of break it down for our listeners, especially, you know, this is targeted for our industry. And I know even after the conference from last week, people are still kind of like, oh, let's see, our industry moves so slow. Maybe nothing's going to really happen. What's right. your perspective on blockchain as it impacts our industry? So I think first and foremost, let's separate blockchain from cryptocurrencies. I think it's the same most important thing. And I, when we talk about when we're talking about this, I think I want to just put aside cryptocurrency for the most part altogether because that is one very specific use and application of blockchain, but is by no means the be all and end all. Secondly, I think in, in when we think about blockchain now too, we think about ICOs and how the world has exploded and this stuff. And we can, we can dig into more what we mean by that. But I think also when we think about blockchain now, the idea of the initial coin offer of tokenization of things are words that people throw around. And I'm happy for us to dig into that. But I think from my perspective, when we talk about blockchain, we want to think about not just things that have caught in people's imaginations now, but direct consumer applications. But blockchain is really a very fundamental technology 
in fact, I, I would refer to it as a technology institution, which is something, a very fundamental change in the way that the world is going to work. And I don't believe I'm overstating that because anyone who I know who has spent time to really dig in to understand blockchain and how it can be used, I have yet to meet anyone who's done that and then come away saying, yeah, you know, I think it's a whole bag of hot air. I'd like anyone to point to me that person. I just don't, I, I think people who spend time really digging in realize the significant applications potential. So it's here to stay. It's going to impact our industry and it's just a matter of timing. Correct. So let's kind of talk about those other applications first <laughs> and then come back to kind of the how blockchain might be is changing how we operate from a consumer facing perspective. Cryptocurrency. Yes. Definition, <laughs> please, Ralph. <laughs> okay. So a cryptocurrency is at the heart of it. It's very simply a digital asset that is unique and transferable. The most famous cryptocurrency of all, of course, is Bitcoin. Um, Bitcoin is the granddaddy of cryptocurrency. And it's probably worth us understanding about what makes Bitcoin so interesting, such an important thing, and why the world has gotten so excited and in ways so scared about it too, because it certainly comes with some baggage at this point in time. First, let's just, just go back to the history of Bitcoin. Someone, someone, some people mm -hmm. produced a paper which they published okay. in 2009 about the blockchain, about the idea of Bitcoin. And the author, the supposed author of that is one named Satoshi Nakamoto. Mm -hmm. Now, the paper laid out the ideas of principle about how you could use technology, a blockchain, in order to enable a currency to, a digital currency to exist. Now, what was interesting at the heart of this is really a couple of ideas was one is you could make a system by creating a system of a distributed ledger where information would be stored everywhere and any changes replicated on the blockchain. And the way that you create the motivation for people to participate in keeping track of this ledger, creating copies is that they have machines that do work solving a little puzzle. And okay. if your puzzle, if you solve the puzzle first, you unlock a token. Token over time would create is has achieved a status of having some value. The proof of work stuff as you do this actually creates another block in the chain and allows the chain to be essentially secure as you go along through the through a cryptographic record. Now, let's just go back. So when the Bitcoin paper was written, at first there was nothing. Great. Then someone decided, okay, I'm actually gonna go and I'm gonna set this up and I'm going to go and create the first block on this particular Bitcoin blockchain. That was in about January of 2009. By October 2009, there were only 100 blocks in the blockchain, on the Bitcoin blockchain, very slow. But interestingly, just after that, for the first time, there was a price. October 5th, 2009, someone finally posted a price, 1 16th of a cent. Would have been a good time to, yeah, uh, good to time start to mining buy. Bitcoin. Yeah. Right? <laughs> But and but from then that was that was actually an important landmark that when someone could actually agree a price that they had then the price signaled scarcity. When you can price something, it means it's worth something. This thing has some unique value. And so by creating scarcity in the digital realm, this was the first moment of really being able to prove that you could have a distinctive digital asset. And how um, did they get set that price? Was it just this is the clearing price between two parties that sold this Bitcoin at 1 16th of a cent. Now, what's interesting about this Bitcoin is you really think about it, what makes it a potential store of value? And people consider it to be that at this point in time. There's the key, if you, if you talk to economists, what do you need to have money? These are the key, the key dimensions are fungibility, durability, portability, divisibility, uniformity, limited supply, 
and acceptability. So, and you think about that with Bitcoin, we have that in the extreme. Obviously, it's hyper portable. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's some code. You could send that anywhere. If you think about the, the portability as well, it's the value per unit of weight. It's essentially infinite, right? It's infinitely divisible. It's scarce though, too. There's only so many Bitcoins that'll ever get mined. Top set of 14 million Bitcoins. That's it. And so- Who sets that limit, that 14 million? That's that's it. That's part of the the protocol of the network. So the Bitcoin network has that as a rule of its network. More about, this is what makes blockchain development interesting itself is the idea, but how do you control the network? And let's come to that because it's another important facet of Bitcoin. But the what's what's interesting though here, just we're talking about the the the, the dimensions of of Bitcoin itself. You've got this thing which is a has all the features of money, but it has a it can serve as a store of value, but it has a third function that does not exist in currencies today, which is the settlement layer, the okay. payment system. And this is the really the most interesting thing about this. What it means is I can pay you in Bitcoin, you or anyone else in the world, and I need no middleman. It's the same as me being able to give you cash, but I can do that anywhere in the world. And it seems obvious that you should be able to, surely if we use, I could pay you now via credit card, except I'm not paying you. If I use a credit card to pay you, I need a middleman to do that. I need the credit card company to do it. I need a bank to do that. I do something. If I transfer you Bitcoin digitally, I'm giving you that money immediately. The settlement layer is built in. And with this, some people will refer to blockchain as essentially the trust protocol, that you can trust that I am giving that to you. It's a, it becomes a trustless system. We don't need to have trust. And this is where when I referred to originally the idea about blockchain as a technology institution. That's what I mean. If you think about the development of society, society is developed to one degree around the facet around of trade. There's a fantastic book uh, Jared Diamond wrote called Guns, Germs, and Steel. And he articulates the evolution of societies by the ability to store, really comes down to being able to store surplus production and the need for creating rules and regulations around that, essentially institutions of trust. If I create surplus grain, how do I dictate the rules around how to do that? Well, the Code of Hammurabi was really that, right? So we have a Warehouse, how much grain can keep in the warehouse? Jared Dem does a wonderful job exploring evolution of societies. And and ultimately, the heart of these are these institutions of trusts, laws, banking systems, and the like. Blockchain is really the first technology that is an institution. It has the capacity to embody those things, which otherwise have been embedded in laws and in in systems that society has created. Because, and, and this is a good example, just being able to pay you via Bitcoin shows that it suddenly we do not need that middleman that have been the traditional part. And Got this it. becomes another important part of, of blockchain that we'll come to as well about the notion of, of the abolition of middlemen. So, so blockchain or cryptocurrency or Bitcoin specifically is really its currency that uses yes. blockchain technology. Correct. Yes. It's a system which allows the transfer of value between people and a store of value, but it's a decentralized system that creates value through the participation of the, of the system itself, of the ecosystem. And Bitcoin, you could then buy things with. Right. Exactly. Okay. Interestingly, people have been exchanging, have been buying and selling with Bitcoin now for a good number of years. Some famous examples about people having paid, bought some pizza for some Bitcoin, you know, a good few years ago now, where now that those pizzas were you know, technically worth millions of dollars. Yeah, but, uh, wow. But that's, but that's also been the, the inflationary, upwards inf- inflationary pressure has really been a function of the growth of the number of people coming in and using mm-hmm. Bitcoin. 
So let's just talk a little bit about that because what sure. I think what's important is about what Bitcoin ha- represents now is something in the order of 200, 250 billion dollars of value. It is the the people who have chosen to participate in the Bitcoin ecosystem collectively have created the world's largest supercomputer, four times the size of the next largest one. They've all given their resources freely without anyone organizing or telling them to do this. And I think this is one of the most fascinating attributes of Bitcoin and of blockchain is that if you get the incentives right, if you set clear operating rules in an ecosystem, look at the kind of results you can achieve. Mm -hmm. They have built something out of nothing. Now, I'll compare that to a new entrant, let's say a relatively new entrant into the blockchain and cryptocurrency space, another platform known as Ethereum. Now, Ethereum was developed and launched just a few years ago. It had one important innovation to the Bitcoin blockchain. It had the idea of a cryptocurrency component, a token that could convey value, but it also incorporated a new idea called the smart contract. And this is an enhancement to the settlement part is I can create rules around when the settlement will take place. And once those things, those conditions are met, the payment is unlocked and delivered as part of that. Now, what's particularly amazing about Ethereum, and just to go to show how quickly this system is developing, just three years ago, Ethereum was launched. The Ethereum token was essentially free. The company had no value. Companies now, Ethereum tokens are worth now over $100 billion in three years. And I believe that Ethereum tokens now are about 25% of the total crypto ecosystem's worth. So it's really impressive. We're in such early days, but Ethereum has done well. There's, we could talk about many other currencies mm-hmm. out there, many other platforms, but it just goes to show that there's, there's such an appetite for innovation in the space. And Ethereum has worked hard to solve those problems. And the most interesting distinction between Ethereum and Bitcoin is the fact that there is actually a leader for Ethereum. We know the guys who founded it. And they're able to sort of guide and drive the ecosystem along. And this is a very interesting thing because Bitcoin is truly a leaderless system. And that's so there's, That's actually hard to imagine. Correct. It is hard to imagine. And it's interesting to see. uh, For me personally, what fascinates me is to think about, we have this incredible experiment going on about what is a better system in this space. The central tenets, there's an interesting philosophy that I think is pervasive in the existing blockchain world. I think it expands across all these networks where in the, the ethos of blockchain is about how do you build by its nature a decentralized network. How do you try to create a thing where there is no one person, no one silo, and no one black box making decisions about things, but rather trying to push it out, be transparent, publish the code, make everything very clear, set up the rules so the systems in way become as self-administering, as self-regulating, and as self-supporting and rectifying as possible. You said that in the ecosystem, people have shared resources to enable blockchain to grow, yes, right? Yes, that's right. And those resources are computing power, computing storage. What are what are those resources? Well, you think at the so for Bitcoin specifically, it is computing power, CPUs dedicated to be able to crunch these puzzles in order yes. to produce a block for the blockchain. And how does one decide? How does one participate in that? I mean, it's not human connection, is it? Or is it? Yeah, like that yes, fascinates it's, it's, me. You can download some code and get and busy mining. Really, really, that's it. Okay, yeah. thank now, you. I always wondered that. <laughs> it's 
it's really it is that simple and and in fact it's leading to some very interesting solutions there is a european product now on the market that you can buy a heater that's a crypto heater so the new product on the market in europe a crypto heater it is using so someone had the smart idea of taking a set of cpus and mining for bitcoin just like doing any high high intensity processing task generates a lot of heat it requires okay. energy. They thought, well, what, why don't we make use of that heat? And so they embedded it into a piece of household furniture, a heater, essentially, um, that helps conduct the heat away from the processors they run efficiently and warm your home. That's amazing. So what's particularly interesting is the device costs about $5,000. There's about three-year lifetime value to pay it back in terms of a sort of mining schedule when you right. should be able to earn back the cost of it and the electricity you're using. So I think it's quite fascinating. I think you could have potentially whole buildings earning their keep or paying for their energy themselves by mining currencies. That's pretty cool. It's, it's interesting. It, it kind of it boggles the brain a little bit to think, but it's that these sort of self-reinforcing systems where people are helping contribute to the collective good in ways right. and able to benefit from it, it makes some interesting sense and can create yes. some very different business models. Let's talk about smart contracts. Yes. So my understanding is that you can define what, how you want to trade, when you want to trade, what you, what you want, basically your requirements in terms of exchange of information. Yes. And it's trusted and it's secure and it's all the beautiful things in the world. I guess I was just wondering, how does that information get validated? Like as it being real and, and sound? Let's talk one extreme. I sure. was just yesterday meeting with a, a company that is two different companies. One is putting rare earth minerals on a blockchain. So you're going to be able to trade precious minerals that are needed okay. for producing batteries, so rechar re rechargeable batteries. Interesting. And interesting on kind of the opportunity. And I think it's, maybe I'll just explain a little bit of their play in using blockchain and why it's important because it comes back to where smart contracts fit in. Currently, these kinds of metals are exchanged on the London Metal Exchange. Fascinating in that the London Metal Exchange has exactly nine seats for trading. Nine people trade the world's metal assets of certain kinds of metal assets at this one place. There's then another tier of people outside of them who are allowed to talk to those nine people, those <laughs> nine, about 30 something, I think it's 30, 32 seats behind those people. So if you imagine, if you want to trade in certain kinds of metals that trade on the LME, there are ultimately nine people that can make those decisions. It's a highly centralized, highly controlled yeah. organization. These guys, their mission is, how do we actually enable the trade of these certain mineral wealth in a decentralized way? Let's, let's essentially blow up the, these markets because it's clearly anything but efficient. It's efficient for the people who are at the center of the exchange, but it is not efficient for pricing and for the market overall. Sure. And so the heart of it is how do we create a, How do they create a contract that can help people to, who are producing the, uh, the minerals at the site to be able to then deal directly with a end customer. And, in doing so then potentially create an entirely different kind of market dynamic of buyers and sellers being able to connect directly. Completely takes the middleman yep. out, right? And many, many, many layers of middlemen. And moreover, just imagine if you or I wanted to buy or sell in these metals, this fellow is explaining to us, showing us great charts right now, the world market for these rare metals are actually at an all-time low, curiously. So you would think it's a good time to buy, but neither you or I could get anywhere close to buying it because there's so many layers, so many people away from this to trade. But by putting, by being able to create a blockchain, which essentially says, I can allow for the secure contracting for the buyers, 
sale or purchase of these elements, I can start to create a system to allow much more efficient direct contracts between the people who are making it and the people who can use it and without having to go through these exchanges. So the digital asset of being this contract on a blockchain, but I can own a certain unit of production from a given mine and they can be producing the elements of that and keeping track of that on the ledger. So obviously you can't put the actual, say the, the lithium right. onto itself, but you can put a specific ton that's produced from a certain mine and that capacity, that particular portion of it can be bought and sold as an item. And that can be contracted and that contract can be therefore tracked. So you know then who's bought it, where it's going to and how it's transmitted. Um, to another end, um, I was meeting with another company who's doing the same thing with real estate assets. Okay. And being able to put your mortgage or not your mortgage, your house title, the property mm -hmm. title on a blockchain. What's interesting is right now, for the sake of being able to, to start somewhere, is they cannot put every kind of potential condition into the smart contract. What they're doing is the smart contract really is controlling a special purpose vehicle or a special purpose entity, an SPE, which is a sort of contract which puts the house into a trust. And the smart contract is able to essentially allow the purchase, the sale or purchase of this house for cash only and only for 100% interest of it and allows essentially the transfer of this title. But there's certain conditions we met, the money's there, things have cleared that. But with those processes, some of it which are digital and some of which are not yet digital, they can still allow this thing to clear. The, the world is anything, it is not like right now suddenly everything is moving perfectly and fluidly. But and again, in the case of this mortgage, they've taken these steps to know, all right, we can handle the sale of one very clean asset in a simple cash only deal between two parties when there's 100% transfer of the equity in the home. What gets interesting and complex, and this is where the world will take time to unfold, is if you think about edge cases like there's a divorce, I want to have multiple owners, or if there's a mortgage involved where the bank has to have a lien on the house, all of those things will require conditions which currently are hard to contemplate in a smart contract. It's but, highly nuanced. Exactly. But they're doing the work. So for example, these guys are in discussions with Fannie Mae in order to create the kind of regulatory structure that would allow for the creation of smart contracts that will contemplate a lien as part of it. So there is a big gap between where people can see that things going where they are now. And that's part of, so when we, when we think about things, the smart contract is a thing that exists now and practically we can have set up some very simple rules like to the industry of let's say consumer data, I can set up very something, if it's very simple where I'm willing to give, let's say my internet browsing history to someone if they pay me $5 with a Bitcoin. So simple transaction, the smart contract, that could be the deal. My uh, browsing history can be held in off chain and its own secure environment that when someone pays me that, that $5 with a Bitcoin, you they get a key, they unlock right. it, where they go. It's theirs to do what they want. I'm not expecting any further payment from it, done. So that would be a very simple smart contract. So we can go from the case of the very simple, something yep. that could be executed now, to the planning of doing quite complex things. But the, the fact is that people are thinking deeply, deliver very complex things. But we are in early days. It seems to me in our industry, blockchain allows the respondent or consumers to gain a lot more control of their information. They get to set the price. They get to dictate what they want to share, when they want to share it. Is that a fair assessment in terms of, you know, the, the role of blockchain as it relates to respondents? Yes, I think I would frame it slightly differently, but, but in the same, same spirit. Where blockchain can play in helping facilitate a better 
value disbursement or sharing. Let me say that differently. I think where blockchain is going to help better people better realize the full and fair value of their personal data is is through a number of different elements of the ecosystem. First and foremost, we have to think about why does good data matter? And currently, why is the market okay with less than excellent data? Because right now people are okay to buy data that is filled with at least some percentage of fraudulent data or that's you know good enough. Good enough. What is, so let's think about what's going to drive demand because currently right now people are fine with good enough data, except there's one other big change underway now, which is going to show people that good enough data is not good enough. And that is the increasing, rapidly increasing and systematic usage of AI technology and machine learning. We, that's another discussion yes. for us to have <laughs> people who are smarter than I on the topic of AI and machine learning, but let's talk about AI specifically. There's been some very interesting scholarship done. There's a great example. Some guys from MIT just recently published a paper where they took two different bots they set up to train. And they trained them on two different sets of the internet. One on the regular internet to scan and just to learn about the world from the context of the open internet. The second was training it on learning from the dark web. They called that bot the dark web fed bot Norman as a Norman <laughs> psycho. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yes, right. But their naming was prescient because what they found after feeding this was quite interesting. They gave both bots the Rochart test. So those, you know, those, you know, you've seen these pictures, these yes. iconic pictures of butterfly, or what are these things that look like a butterfly, a child playing, something like mm -hmm. that. So the normal bot saw this stuff and gave normal responses. Mm -hmm. Oh, it looks like, you know, a butterfly. It looks like whatever, normal kind of everyday things. The dark web fed bot, started seeing things like, oh, that's like person being murdered. That is person doing some other horrible thing. This is that. The, the fact is that the two bots ended up with totally different worldviews based on the data fed to train them. That's amazing. It's fascinating and important. There's mm -hmm. other work that has been done, which has resulted in the same kinds of conclusion. Overall, what it means is if you as a company, as a business, any kind of entity are going to use AI, the data you use to power these things is critical. You must have the best possible data. A good enough data is not going to do the job because you will train your robot to have its own Norman-like outputs if you do not take great care. And so I think as people come to really understand that, internalize it, then the need for high quality consumer data is going to explode. Mm -hmm. People are not, suddenly it will not be a, okay, it's a cost question and fine, I can deal with less than good data. No, you just actually have to make sure it's coming from a real human being. It's got to be superior. It's got to be amazing. It has data. to be, yeah. it has to be right. right. It just has to be right, right. and accurate. You can't fraudulent data that is distortive will materially change the performance of these things and distort the results accordingly. You will have anything but a real sense of world. And so this takes us back to, so why, where does blockchain in our world play? Well, I think there's a few different dimensions to which people are already tackling this in ways that are, will make a material difference. The first comes down to actually just proving who we are. There's a number of different companies taking on approaches to being able to help each of us secure our personal data so that authenticating who we are becomes really simple. Like if you go open up a bank account now, it's a pain, all right. these things, right? So a number of companies now have started up KYC systems, essentially where the goal is you should be able to give a bank, a mortgage company, your doctor, your employer, whoever needs some of that stuff, those files 
on the moment, secured on the blockchain so they can get access to that stuff for their purposes and then access is done, away you go. So just imagine from a consumer. So the KYC element is one part. The second part then is how do I start to organize my assets in a way that can allow them to be monetized? And so there's a number of companies there starting up where there, if one company has got you know, a good name of the uh, data wallet. And there's lots of companies with, with variants of the same idea of where I as a person should be able to, through this company, through this blockchain platform, be able to put on my data and control who gets access to it and under what conditions. And these companies are all going to look for different ways on how do they help define your data, help you structure and provision it and commercialize it. The, each of those parts are still, there's a lot of hand waving to be done, are starting to take steps in, in doing this. And in a way, it starts to change the value equation. I'll explain to you, I think there's a very interesting business I came across the other day where their value proposition feels really right for needing the blockchain. In most of our research now, if you do a survey, you get paid for it. You're, doing, you're essentially doing some paid work and paying for your time and your opinions. If I'm asking you for behavioral data, hmm. I think it starts to change a little bit. If I'm asking for a feed of data from your mobile device, then just paying you one off for that doesn't seem very fair. And in fact, most people have typically been paying consumers on a monthly basis for access to their data feed. What if I can do something like I can extract your entire Amazon purchase history, very valuable. Mm -hmm. And actually under GDPR rules now, it's all accessible. But if I, as a researcher, get that from you, once I have that asset, I can resell that many, many, many times. Is that fair? Might you just like, for myself, I think about that, I'm like, I wouldn't do that. Would you? Yeah. I mean, I would, that's not fair. Right. <laughs> so this is where I think these, these, these blockchain plays can become very interesting. If you think about if I could put on my Amazon purchase history, the blockchain and be able to sell that for whatever becomes the fair market price for that, but I can control who's doing that. So that they're, I'm, every time it's getting used, I'm getting some rent for my data that setting up an opportunity for me to be able to generate royalties through the use, the fair use of my data becomes something which is, I think, very, seems much more equitable for everybody and also more motivating. This community without a middle person, it feels almost more altruistic, more in line with the goals of blockchain as part of an ecosystem. Right. And it aligns everyone's interests more strongly because right. I will want to give my data if I know I'm getting a fair price for it. And yeah. That's the problem we have right now is getting people to do research is we, can, we pay so little because the middlemen are taking such big chunks of the cost. And for doing what? Yes. You know, we can have <laughs> so, and, and maybe we could argue they're doing fair, you know, they're doing the work that's needed to clear the market and that. What starts to be possible if you can create the way to allow the secure transmission of data between the data creator, i.e. the person and the data consumer, i.e. the client who wants to process it in their AI system as such, that then you can start to, if you have a system which can allow through smart contracting and the like, this becomes a very easy and efficient way by which things can transact. You don't need those middlemen to be doing that. So Rolf, how, what's your prediction? Like how, how quickly are we going to change in our industry with the use of hmm. blockchain? Or, or maybe you don't know yet. Well, okay, how quickly will things change and how quickly will our industry change? That's a fair are... question. Fair clarification. And I would say, first of all, where are we in terms of development? If you think about where we stand in terms of adoption of 
blockchain related stuff, there are approximately 25 million crypto wallets in use. So let's compare that to the growth of the internet. The internet had about 40 million users in between 1995 and 1996. So if we think about widespread consumer usage, we're somewhere in the early days of that. So we're still a few years away from the dot-com boom. And I think that that, I'm not sure I would plague us, pick us exactly there. There are some innovations that have happened, including things with Ethereum that allow people with more general developer skills to be able to start to build on the platform. There are people who are building whole new tool sets that are things, big developer kits that allow people to develop on blockchain very quickly that are coming. But I don't think we've yet hit the dot-com peak kind of bubble growth. We're obviously seeing massive amounts of development and massive amounts of investment coming in. Just last year alone, over $4 billion came into the market, into this market through ICOs. Another $700 million came in from venture capital investment. And already this year, so far, not even halfway through the year, over $7 billion has been raised through ICOs and over $500 million is coming through VC funding, an enormous amount. And it's coming into a whole range of projects. Most interestingly, there's a quite a big schism between the distribution of funds into ICOs versus VC related investments. The ICOs going into uh, the distribution of funds across types of ICO projects is much wider distributed than that of VCs. So it'll be interesting in itself to grow. Tell us what an ICO is. Yes. Okay. And an ICO is an initial coin offering. It is a very new funding mechanism. The first ICO happened only in 2015. And over the course of the last few years, it has become an incredibly popular way by which to fund a blockchain related venture. The idea of any of these ICOs, a coin is a short way of saying a token. A token is essentially a unit of value needed to help to transmit value through a given ecosystem. A Bitcoin is a token. The In Ethereum, Ether is the token, it's otherwise referred to as gas. How you pay for using the blockchain to enable the transactions that you are running on Ethereum. It's the economic incentive to participate. There are other kinds of, to give you an example, so when someone uh, has an ICO, what they are doing is they are getting people into an ecosystem early and providing financial incentives to do so. The purpose for doing this is to jumpstart the development of the ecosystem, to get people in and participating with it. And so I'll give you an example of an interesting company called Filecoin. Filecoin is competing with people like Dropbox or, or OneDrive, these guys, anyone who is doing distributed file storage. Filecoin is, it takes on the, rather than setting up dedicated servers, uses spare capacity on whoever is participating in the network's hard drives. It's actually a beautiful That's business model. That's interesting, right. Right. Yeah. And you have unused capacity. Yes. So for you to participate in the network merely costs you some electricity. But you get paid in this network through the tokens to the Filecoin token if you're giving space. And if you're using space, you pay with Filecoin tokens. So in order to jumpstart an ecosystem like Filecoin, they have sold their tokens to the market that creates liquidity for this market from the outset so that people can buy into the market, essentially buying tokens that can buy their service or they can be 
um, selling them if they're selling they're selling tokens, they're selling space on their hard drives and that to participate in the network. What's interesting and specific about an ICO that's different than say just raising venture capital financing mm -hmm. or private equity financing is that typically the the money coming in is not dilutive to the people founding the company. The money goes in and is paid out in different ways. Usually something to the company that started it up, something mm -hmm. to people who helped raised it, but also there's usually quite a large portion of capital that's being retained to pay people, say, bounties for fixing problems, mm -hmm. pay rewards to people who are doing things to improve the ecosystem. And there's other kinds of interesting uh, incentives that people are using and using that capital to pay those out. So there's some different structures and we could spend a long time talking yes. about all the different flavors, yeah. but at the heart of it, you need people to come into an ecosystem to establish it, especially when you're talking about the nature of blockchain is about having network effect, but having a large number of people, a large number of nodes on a blockchain to make it really work. And ICOs are a way about bringing capital in and driving people to participate quickly in, in that ecosystem. And it doesn't dilute. There's no equity dilution for the founders. Right. Which is the- Which you know, is really which, an important point. And it leads to a whole host of legal questions which are getting solved through. One more thing about ICOs. There's, there's essentially three kinds of ICOs that are, are taking place. Um, there is um, traditional uh, security uh, ICO, which is actually where people are selling equity in their businesses through an offering. So that does happen sometimes. It's also, there's a flavor of them called, referred to as SAFTS. There is the a crypto, there is people are selling actually a financial product, like a crypt, so any of the cryptocurrencies are being sold, floated as an ICO. And there's also then utility tokens is the third category. And the utility token is, Filecoin is an example of that. So you're actually not, it's not really a currency, it is a unit of value, value on the network, but it's really about buying and selling the space on the hard drive on someone's computer. Interestingly, this, those utility tokens, the SEC has just filed that they are not going to treat them as a security, an important judgment from them because it's gonna help clarify the rules around how people can raise money and it does have implications for how much money will be available. I think for our industry, the idea about being able to sell utility tokens on networks that are dealing with consumer data suddenly makes that a lot clearer that building up a network powered by selling something through an ICO suddenly becomes a lot less risky than it may have been just a month ago. Thank you for that education on ICOs. I feel like every topic that we've touched on can go in to a deeper discussion. So I appreciate you being patient and kind of giving us an overview of these different topics. I did want to ask you one last question, and that is, what's the downside of blockchain? If you are a siloed business, if you built your business on being black box, then you're facing a potentially big downside because this is really about how do you create ecosystems which are all about removing the silos and moving a black boxness. It's all about transparency and decentralization Got and through that power. I think that's a, now there are some other downsides as well in the fact that, you know, this technology is new. It's, it's, there's all sorts of problems, there's kinks in it, but this is also technology and we've all lived through the application of Moore's law and others, you know, relevant or associated laws that there's a relentless progression to doing stuff cheaper and faster, you know, eventually towards being nearly free and ubiquitous. Everyone I've spoken to who works on doing the real plumbing in the space, all the problems I hear people talk about, they all feel are solvable. They don't, necessarily know exactly how to solve, but they all have good ideas. And there's a lot of really smart people mm -hmm. with a lot of cash and motivating them to do that. So, so nothing seems insurmountable. There, of course, there's issues and areas that have to be worked through, but it feels manageable to solve them. More than manageable. There's a huge network of highly motivated people on the Go case. Do it. So blockchain's here to stay. 
It's not, yes. it's not going anywhere. And it's just a matter of time as, as to how our industry, the research industry embraces it. Right. And I think this is where, importantly, there are a whole new host of companies coming at our space that don't yet, that don't really, some of them know about our space, but just don't care. Some right. are hiring people from our space to help them succeed, but they are all coming at this orthogonally. They have no interest in coming at head on, but you get this class of companies where there's very different kinds of players. Here's an example. So we've talked about the guys that are playing in the KYC space. There's the people who are playing in the help me organize the consumer's data into a portfolio. But then there's other players, like for example, there's a whole class of companies that are creating prediction markets, different way of taking, solving the problem around how to understand behavior and that, and rewarding people for being very good at predicting what are gonna happen in certain markets. There are companies which are looking at how to reward participation in certain media environments. Like there's a company called YouNow, which is a competitor to YouTube. And they've introduced a tokenized dimension to their service where consumers of content and, and creators of content are rewarded through their efforts in participating in the ecosystem. You get companies like Exchange, which are connecting different kinds of blockchains in the media industry to help support and reduce fraud across the ad, the digital ad markets. There's a lot of different kinds of plays, all of which really don't care about the status quo. And I've had discussions with people, I think, you know, going back to our earlier point about helping get something more equitable for consumers in this ecosystem, I talked to people and, and responses been along the lines of like, well, that's very idealistic. It's mm -hmm. very hopeful. Is there really enough there? You know, the way the world is structured now, there's these big silos like Google and Facebook that have grown up. And all I can think is that this ecosystem that we're living in now, the internet, is still very new. Really started, I, I myself was involved in helping get the first newspaper online. It was in London, the Daily Telegraph. That was only in 1994 really not long that whole way the internet grew was in a certain way actually where it grew in a trustless way it needed people they needed silos to create trust we needed to create human kinds of institutions but this is the power of blockchain as it shows mm -hmm. it has created a system that we don't need those people playing those roles in this all and so that power of creative destruction is going to be washing through here what i find so interesting is that we're talking about trust and we're talking about ethics and we're talking about, you know, the words that you traditionally don't necessarily talk about in business. They're just, they're implicit or explicit in some ways, but it, it's definitely changing times. Uh, yes, it is. And I, I think it's one of the reasons why for me personally, I've been busy working on ways and how do I make sure that consumers get treated fairly and giving their yeah. data? Cause I've always, I just, for me, it just feels like the right thing to do. I think here, I don't think it is, a hallucination to imagine us being able to pay a large swath of the population at least some money on a regular basis so that people can understand their needs and preferences and serve those things. And if this all, if we can through the work and the application of this technology in our space, be able to pay some sort of small universal basic income, be a piece of that equation, I think it's very interesting. And that's, that for me is perhaps the one of the fundamental drivers of all this is that there's the capacity of helping people in a small way towards having a little bit of a better life by finding a more fair way for them to commercialize their own data production. That's a nice overarching kind of motivation in terms of being involved in this. 
Mm. It's not. It's more than nice, actually. It's important. I think it's a little bit of humanity there. Yeah, I think it's massively important, yeah. really, because it's about how do we make the system work that really supports everyone in a fair way. Again, it's about equity here. It's not about giving our hands out, but if people are participating in the ecosystem, let them get their fair, their fair share of it. Fair. Right, exactly. Yeah. Rolf, thank you so much for joining me. I'd love to have you back and maybe we can talk about a creative way to continue to inform and educate folks on blockchain. Absolutely. It'd be a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Data Gurus Podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.datagurusepodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.datagurusepodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.